Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. In the following, you'll hear an interview with Jan Stöpmann, lecturer of modern history at the Helmut Schmidt University of Hamburg, on his book The Architects of International Relations, published with Cambridge University Press. The interview was recorded on the 16th of September. Enjoy. Hi, Jan. Welcome to the New Diplomatic History Podcast. Hi, Hakan. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Uh, so you've recently published this really excellent book, uh, The Architects of International Relations, Building a Discipline, Designing the World, 1914 to 1940, uh, with Cambridge University Press, published here in 2022. So uh, we will discuss this book a little bit, but I've thought first you could tell us a little bit about your educational trajectory and how you ended up working on the historical origins of IR and its place and impact on contemporary international politics. Well, yes, it was quite a trajectory and I probably didn't think that I would end up writing a book like this when I first went to university back in 2008. I actually did my undergraduate degree in philosophy and economics, which was a great program. But I decided to switch to history for my master's because I felt that uh, I had learned quite a fair amount of theories and models that helped to explain the world. But I wanted to know more about what actually happened in the world. Um, but I was also interested in sort of the big questions about world order and international organization. Mark Mazower's book, Governing the World, had just come out which was an early influence, I guess. And so was Susan Peterson's work on the League of Nations mandate system, which hadn't been published yet, but um, I heard her give a paper at Columbia University where I did my master's. And then it was Susan actually who first pointed me to a collection of conference proceedings um, from the 1920s and 30s um, about a series of meetings in various European cities, which was called the International Studies Conference. Um, and so I went into the library and I looked up these volumes um, of conference proceedings. And it turns out that the International Studies Conference was the most important platform during the interwar period for scholars of international relations. But not just scholars of international relations, um, but actually a whole cast of, um, uh, of diplomats, uh, politicians, journalists, and what we would now call experts. Um, so there you had not just people like Alfred Zimmern, Arnold Toynbee, James Shotwell, E.H. Carr was there, David Mitrani, Philip Noel Baker, and so on. Uh, a real who's who um, of, of IR at the time. But there were also public men, as they were then called, um, like William Beveridge, um, the brothers Alan and John Foster Dulles, or Edouard Eriot from France. Um, there were a few women as well, um, which weren't really in the historiography by then. Uh, such as Vera Michelle Dean, who was a foreign policy association researcher. Um, and so the more I read uh, in these conference proceedings, I thought that there was something, not just for a master's thesis, which I ended up writing about the International Studies Conference itself, but perhaps a little more, um, um, a little more of, a, of an intellectual history of the discipline of international relations but also in particular about the connections between academia and diplomacy, between universities and foreign ministries and so on. 
And so I think that's really what I found fascinating about this story, that there was this overlap. Um, and that's really, really what kept me going and, and pursuing a doctorate in history afterwards, um, writing about international relations um, as, as a discipline in, in a much broader sense. So, yeah, so do you, you wrote an MA thesis on, on the International Studies Conference and then you thought there's meat here for much, much more. And then you decided to write uh, an intellectual but also a political history of the uh, genesis of, of the discipline of IR and its place in politics uh, in the interwar period and, and, and beyond, you could say. So attacking this massive topic, uh, how did you decide to structure your book as you did and, and kind of dig out the main arguments of the book? What, what, what are those, if you could give them in, 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 a, in a short podcast version? That's a that's a great question because there was a lot of material and I actually ended up going to archives in six countries, um, digging up a lot of stuff in both public archives and state archives, but also a lot of personal papers. And so I had a wealth of primary source material that needed structuring. Um, and I went the way I went about this in the book is uh, by taking a broadly chronological structure but also having thematic emphases in, in each of those chapters. Um, I actually added a chapter um, after the uh, dissertation and when I turned it into a book, but the structure broadly um, is still the same. And what I had in, my, in the back of my mind was to make the individual chapters work uh, in themselves. So they can, I think, actually be read either by themselves or along with the introduction or, or, the, or the conclusion. Uh, which I think is often very helpful if you don't want to read a full, what is it, 312-page page book in one go. Um, and the story also really lent itself to be structured in this way. So very briefly, the six chapters cover first the wartime origins of IR, which was important because that hadn't really been covered before at all. So the story between 1914 and 1919 uh, because the traditional start of the discipline had always been 1919 with the foundation of the um, first professorship in Aberystwyth. Um, and then the second chapter covers uh, the 1920s and the genesis of the discipline in an institutional sense. Um, so there I look at a whole bunch of departments and chairs and, and journals and so on. And where did the funding come from? Um, that's part of chapter two. And, and chapter three then covers um, the dimension of intellectual cooperation. Um, so the League of Nations and in, in particular its agencies for intellectual cooperation were a very important platform for exchange and also provided a lot of finances and structure to the discipline. So that's, again, as, as you see, um, a, a bit of a, a theme of its own. Uh, the fourth chapter is perhaps in many ways the entire argument in a nutshell, where I look at a, a number of different cases um, from the uh, from the Geneva um, Protocol to to the Calabrian Pact of, of cases where professors really tried to act as diplomats. So it's called professors as diplomats, uh, which was actually I think a working title for the book at some point. Um, and then the, the chapter five goes into a little more detail um, on, on collective security, uh, which was, you know, one of the major themes uh, within the intellectual trajectory of IR in the interwar period, um, and which 
also the International Studies Conference devoted a whole session to. Um, and I end in the last chapter six with um, the demise of interwar international relations with a particular focus on the German story. Um, because again, um, coming from Germany myself, um, I, uh, I had the advantage of uh, being able to quickly go through um, a whole bunch of archival documents from various German institutions uh, and sort of tie that story into the international story of IR because it was a very much international story. The Carnegie Endowment, for instance, um, sponsored IR chairs um, both in Paris and Berlin and elsewhere in the world. So it was important to me to have that as a, as a common thread throughout the chapters. So yeah, and then perhaps the last thing I can say about the structure is that the conclusion is perhaps not as much of a conclusion than more of an epilogue and perhaps a, a, a bit of a, yeah, a controversial argument because um, going on from what, um, for what William Rapar, the Swiss diplomat said in the 1930s about the state of IR, uh, there's this brilliant quote um, where he um, where he realizes, let me just look this up because it's it's so nicely worded actually. Um, he says uh, in 1938, this is, he says, obviously one cannot but gamble about the future in as much as almost everything depends on the unforeseeable decisions of the gamblers who are in authority in at least two European neighbor states. So this idea that all that IR can do really is gamble about the future. Um, and that's not a very optimistic outlook for anyone pursuing IR at an academic uh, scientific level. Um, and so I use this as a, as a challenge uh, to IR as a subject um, more broadly, um, including, um, including what came after the Second World War. So maybe I could uh, push, push you a little bit on, on this then. I mean, you're, you're, you're placed between, in a sense, I mean, you're thoroughly placed in the discipline of history, but you're looking into the origins of a of a bordering discipline, perhaps, and a discipline that was somehow enmeshed with history and law and other disciplines at the time of uh, which you're looking into. So curious to hear uh, what the response basically has been, uh, also in light of this conclusion slash epilogue in, in, in the IR field. What's the response been? Um, I haven't really had that much of a response yet, which is perhaps not a good sign. Um, I, I can tell you that one of the one of the uh, reviewers of the book, uh, whom I don't know, I suspect is a, it's a person from the IR community, uh, thoroughly disagreed with my argument, but still enjoyed reading it. Um, and I think that's that's the best a scholar can hope for. Um, as I say, it's uh, it's intentionally. Um, a bit of a steep argument perhaps, uh, because it does challenge uh, some of the fundamentals of the discipline as it, as it still exists today. For instance, um, I take up um, arguments against E.H. Carr and his response to the crises of the 1930s. He famously uh, endorsed appeasement. And so this argument of realism didn't really get it right either. Um, um, and breaking up the old paradigms of idealism and realism in the interwar period, um, and now realizing that none of these um, none of these actors really drew up uh, a very consistent theory at all during the interwar period, that got me thinking. Well, what was international relations then, really? Um, 
and and so yeah let's let's see how people react to that but i think uh, all we can do as historians is dig up some of the inconsistencies and peculiarities of the actors in the past um and that's what also kept me going in the project because it was it was so interesting to see the drive of what i all the architects of international relations, the drive to engage in, in politics, to engage in the very object. And that in itself is from a philosophy of science point of view, I think something very interesting. Um, plus, I'm not the only one who asked these questions. There are a couple of references in the epilogue um, to recent um, uh, sort of meta-theoretical studies within IR uh, who asked the question about uh, the status of the discipline itself. Um, so yeah, looking forward to any interaction on that. Well, let's uh, hope uh, this podcast is a kind of invitation to to do just that. Um, yeah, you touched upon some of these uh, interventions, uh, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book and I read it uh, uh, cover to cover, which I can recommend. Um, also, if you don't want to do this introduction and chapter uh, selection. Um, but there are a few things that, that struck me and which you also highlight yourself that I thought I would kind of get your, uh, your take on. Uh, one thing is that what you do also in terms of realism or an idealism, that dichotomy, you do this kind of a complication collapsing of categories, which I think works very, very well and, and which really also prods into some of the, let's say, mythology of, of the field. Um, one is uh, the, com- the the absolute crucial combination, in fact, of the scientific and the normative, of the political and the professional, uh, in in terms of uh, scholarship, uh, and how those roles are actually mutually constitutive, and and could one could perhaps not really be efficient with the other. Um, at least uh, it helped to be in a good position in terms of policy making. Uh, as well, um, or policy advisory. So um, I wondered if you could uh, kind of uh, uh, give your take on this uh, uh, professors as diplomats, as you call them. Mm-hmm. So first, I'm not the first one to reassess the methodic, uh, the mythological dichotomy of, of idealism and realism. This is something that David Long, Peter Wilson, um, Luke Ashworth, Brian Schmidt, etc. Um, launched in the 1990s, uh, and there's been a lot of work um, on on uh, the um, intellectual history of, of IR ever since, uh, including, I should add, um, a recent project by Patricia Owens and, and others on uh, the role of women and women's international thought um, within the broader history of, of international relations as a, as a discipline, but also international thought itself. So um, I'm not the first to play with those um, to play with those terms. Um, I guess I started thinking about it in this way, just going through the archival documents themselves, because many of the protagonists that I write about were very much aware that they had multiple roles themselves and they enjoyed it a lot. They enjoyed being on on the radio. They enjoyed being uh, in the national newspaper. Um, there is a moment when schizophrenically Alfred Zimmern calls himself both a national man and an international institution at the same time. Um, there are people like Arthur Salter who go in and out of the League of Nations and universities. Um, there's, uh, there is a, a 
in the contract of or in the negotiations for Philip Noel Baker taking up the chair at, at LSE, there was discussion about what happens if he gets elected to parliament, uh, which he ends up doing. Um, and so there are all these um, uh, all these moments when it becomes very apparent that uh, distinguishing these architects of international relations into either scholars or practitioners doesn't really work. And as a result, um, their output um, cannot really be easily categorized into any of the um, any of the traditional categories that you would find in a in an IR textbook, at least until the last decade or so. Um, because, well, A, their contributions were very much driven by contemporary debate, um, and they often changed their opinion on, um, for instance, how probable is it that the League of Nations will solve the um, Manchurian conflict or the um, conflict in Ethiopia, etc. Um, and so the, the main goal of the book is to highlight some of those perhaps very yeah, just human inconsistencies um, and, and the ways in which um, scholarship in IR went about uh, during, during this period. And so I guess um, this is part of, of a dual argument. The, the first half of the argument just observes what were people doing, what were they writing about at the time, uh, what were they inspired by. And unlike what we might think today, they, they didn't read just Machiavelli and, and any, of, any of the sort of classic uh, political theorists Yes, they knew about this, of course, but um, I felt they were much more inspired by what was going on in Geneva, in the capitals, in the foreign offices, etc. Um, and the second part of the argument then looks at their output um, and not just the written output in scholarly journals, but also in newspapers, um, speeches, public addresses, their activism in all sorts of pressure groups, etc., um, the role that uh, various sponsors played, um, exchange programs, you name it. Um, and then it becomes very apparent that any, any simplistic uh, categorization doesn't really work. And in fact, well, perhaps it's easier to teach it to students um, if you can just tell them, well, idealism first and then came realism and then, I don't know, constructionism and so on. But, um, but that's just not how things that's just not how things happened. And that's just not how I think scholarly discourse uh, evolves in general. So um, in a way, if you will, it was also an exercise in the historical approach to philosophy of science. Um, I was wondering whether you could uh, perhaps uh, talk a little bit about what you think are the kind of the main interventions of the book, in terms of historiography, approach, or otherwise, basically. Um, so... There are five arguments, broadly speaking, um, which I touched upon already a little bit, but I'll go through them again. Um, the first one is just a chronological point. Uh, the point that if we have to agree on a starting point for IR, 1914 makes much more sense because all of the substantial thinking on the topics of disarmament, freedom of the seas, the democratic control of foreign policy, uh, sanctions, and so on, that was already there during the war, um, which was um, promoted by um, all kinds of institutions, such as the Council for the uh, Council for the Organization of Durable Peace, but also the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, um, which wasn't already named that, but, but became uh, the Women Speak Soon. 
Um, and I go through a, a whole lot of material in the book uh, about what was going on during the war. And I think it's crucial because that's also what the architects of IR um, say themselves uh, when reflecting on the, on the origins um, of, of their field in the 1920s. They all say it was the war that made the difference and not the peacemaking. And I think that also has intellectual implications on this perennial debate about interwar idealism, because in fact, a lot of the thinking actually started during the war with hard facts, rather than um, the supposedly utopian peacemaking in, in Paris after the war. So that's, that, that's the chronological argument. The second argument and intervention I make is then to try to grasp at least some of the international and transnational dimensions of this project. So really going beyond the Anglo-American world, um, including um, the Institut des Etudes Internationales in Paris, um, the Geneva Graduate Institute, but also the Deutsche Hochschule für Politik in Berlin, Institut für Auswärtige Politik in Hamburg, uh, the Consular Academy in Vienna, and so on. So I think there are a total of more than 40 countries represented at the International Studies Conference. And of course, that doesn't cover the entire globe. And again, there is good recent scholarship on the global dimensions or not so global dimensions of the discipline during this time. But I'm, I'm trying to go a lot further than the traditional story of just Chatham House and Council on Foreign Relations, and that's it. Uh, so that's the second argument. The, the third argument I'm making is that women did come up in the story in, in various ways. They contributed um, intellectually to the formation of the discipline. And um, Helena Swanwick, for instance, is a great example who wrote about um, and thought about profoundly um, the, the topic of, of sanctions, for instance, in a very critical sense. The fourth argument then, and we talked about this in the previous question a little bit, is this, this blend of academia and diplomacy um, Helena Swanwick is in fact a, a great example because um, she worked as both a journalist but then also represented her country in Geneva at the League uh, Assembly um, and like her many of the figures transcend um, the boundaries of, of academia and diplomacy several times. Alfred Zimmern, the first professor at Aberystwyth, um, worked as an advisor at the Paris Peace Conference and went into academia, actually ended up working in uh, in the Paris Institute for Intellectual Cooperation uh, at the League of Nations for a bit before then going back into academia. So this fourth and back really uh, um, is a very is a very prominent feature, I think, uh, for many of the of the leading figures. And that leads, and that's the final argument, the fifth argument, to um, a particular way that uh, intellectual output was was shaped. And if I were to draw a conclusion from all that, was was it all futile? Um, was all this thinking that went into um, the making of peace and the preventing of conflict, was it all futile? Well, you could, if you came from a pessimistic point of view, you could say that, and it's, it's probably easy to make that argument because if you sit in Geneva and, uh, and go through the documents, go through the archives, and you see all these all this paperwork and you look at the track record of what actually happened in history, then it, it, yeah, it looks rather gloomy. But on the other hand, um, I think the, uh, the great contribution that um, the architects of international relations made was that they asked bold questions about why governments decided in a particular way. 
and they flagged alternative uh, pathways and scenarios of how international politics could be done. And of course, some of them may have been utopian, and perhaps some of them are still utopian today. But just asking those questions and opening up new spaces for this thinking, and also crucially encouraging a much larger um, spectrum of society to study and not just study these problems at university level, for instance, uh, there was um, evening schools um, right during the, sorry, the First World War, actually, um, teaching international relations to, uh, to, to, to people in general and um, encouraging people to ask these questions and to, uh, to challenge um, the way that, that foreign, foreign policy is made. That, I think, um, was not in vain and that was not futile. Um, and that's also, I guess, the, the nice takeaway of the whole story, if you will. All right. Thank you very much. That's, uh, then we get both the, the negative take and the, and the positive take and possibly also uh, how they intertwined uh, in the minds of the men and women that worked on these issues in the interwar period. Um, and I think you very nicely kind of show the, both the kind of scientific term in terms of foreign policy, which was IR, but also law and uh, and historians and uh, economists, statisticians, there's a whole system at work at changing the nature of foreign politics and diplomacy at, at the time. And also crucially, I think, the democratization as you highlight. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, I think uh, I would want to, as we always do here, round off this uh, very nice uh, conversation with uh, you uh, uh, giving a, a book title or article or a scholar uh, on the topic of diplomacy, very broadly defined, old or new, that has really inspired you or shaped uh, the way you think and write, or which you would just like to recommend? It's a really tough question. Um, but as you just said, Hakan, I think one of the uh, one of the fascinating things about working uh, on international relations in the interwar period is recognizing how broad the field really was. Um, and one author that I found particularly inspiring was Helena Swanwick, as I mentioned already. She did work on sanctions and uh, uh, wrote a piece called Pooled Security, uh, which was great. But she also wrote um, a memoir of the Union for Democratic Control called Builders of Peace. Uh, and she also wrote a brilliant um, uh, memoir of her own life uh, called I Have Been Young. Um, and I think her life and her thinking uh, was one of the most fascinating things uh, along this intellectual journey. There are many others. Uh, William Beveridge, for instance, also wrote a, a great book about the defense of free learning, which, had, um, which is about uh, his efforts to um, provide, uh, provide help to refugee academics in the 1930s, and which had very close links to the work that IR scholars were doing together with the League of Nations and the Institutions for Intellectual Cooperation. And that's, of course, some of the most moving stuff that you can find if you work on transnational scholars in the interwar period. So these authors and, and their work was something that I found really inspiring. If I had to mention a recent publication on diplomacy broadly conceived, I think it would have to be Nick Mulder's work, uh, The Economic Weapon, but you probably all know this uh, and it needs no more recommendation from me. Um, so there's lots more I could talk about, but I think we'll just leave it at that. All right. 
those are some great uh, recommendations, old and new. Memoirs are always also a very, very nice place to start to get into a mindset, a period point of view. So thank you very much, Jan, for your time and for sharing your thoughts on your, your excellent work, your book. And uh, yeah, we hope to, uh, to have you on the podcast sometime in the future as well. So thank you very much. Thanks again for having me and uh, thanks for your interest in your time. Mm-hmm.